and welcome to Small Town Mysteries, where we talk about shit that went down in these small towns, shit that's unsolved, and shit that led to more shit. Except none of these stories actually involve shit so far. I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hi. And Rachel. Hi. Bringing you our very first episode on Hanson, Massachusetts. But before we get into that, let's do a little introductory segment on each of us because this is our first episode. So I'll go first. My name's Kate. I'm almost 25 years old and I'm a law student. I spend a lot of my free time listening to true crime podcasts and I actually freelance write for a few uh, as a ghostwriter. So I figured I might as well start my own, and Christine and Rachel were happy to join me. So, uh, Rachel, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm currently an occupational therapy student, but I graduate in less than a week now. Woohoo! So that's exciting. Um, all I do is listen to true crime podcasts. I'm literally obsessed with them, and I've been wanting to do this for a while. So I'm really excited. Christine? All right. Then we have Christine. I'm Christine. I work with kids with autism and I am in working toward my master's right now. Still have a couple semesters left. I'm 25. I also love true crime podcasts. That's why we're here. And yeah, just excited to delve into the rabbit holes with these two. All right. So I'm going to take our first segment of the day. Uh, So we're talking about Hanson, Massachusetts today, which is the town that Christine and I grew up in. Rachel is from the next town over, and I think we're going to touch on that town at some point. Next week. Definitely next next week. week. Just so everyone knows, we went to a regional high school. Yeah, we went to a regional high school. So multiple towns and lots of students. And that's where, well, I guess... I, that is where we met. Well, I met Christine before. Well, yeah, obviously, you guys are cousins. <laughs> That's where we met Rachel. <laughs> but well, you I met us, yeah, since I was born. It's a little different. Yeah, we all like became friends when we were taking AP Euro together. Yeah, sophomore year AP Euro. Yeah, that was that was that was the year bonding moment. <laughs> All right, I'm going to jump right into this. Um, I'm actually doing a segment on Haunted Hanson for this week because I love spooky things that go bump in the night. And I know technically this is true crime, but there's a crime involved in this and we're going to go for it. Um, I'm going to give a blanket trigger warning before I start for potential murder, potential suicide. It's a mystery, so um, it's not exactly clear what happened, but I want to throw all that out there before I get into it. All right. So growing up in Hanson and with a large family, you can tell it's large because Christine is also in my family, um, that had also grown up in Hanson in past generations. I know for sure that there is so much folklore in this small town, from stories my dad told me to stories we read about in English class for Halloween in middle school to just straight up word of mouth. There are just so many stories and weird things that have happened here in Hanson. So for my segment, I'm going to talk about a haunted place in Hanson, and I'm going to cite sources where I can, but a good chunk of this is quite literally folklore and therefore based on how people tell the stories over time. So some of this may not be fully factually accurate. This is a case that happened over 100 years ago, but I'm going to do my best to follow what the accepted version of events is. So buckle up because this place is uh, it's pretty creepy. 
<laughs> so I'm starting out with Camp Kiwani. We all oh, know gosh. Camp Kiwani. Oh, yes, yeah. We all know I Camp mean, Kiwani. Swim classes there Monday through Friday every summer. I've actually never been to Camp Kiwani, which is kind of crazy really? to think what? about. Right? Yeah. I've well, never you're going been there, to. but I'm going to be. I know. We're going to have a ghost hunt <laughs> when we go. Oh, gosh. No. <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you, Kate, some of the stories that I have heard through the years and as a young child growing up in Hanson about Camp Kwani, they spooked me and gave me nightmares for, I'm not even going to lie, years. So I'm excited. <laughs> I, yeah. So this, like, when we first talked about doing this, this was the only thing I could think of to do for Hanson because I feel like it's kind of like one of the things we're known for is mm-hmm. like, oh, you have that haunted wedding venue, don't you? And it's like also like it's owned by the towns with the, this like stuff. So I'm going to, I'll dig into it. Um, so I chose Kim Kwani because anyone who's lived in Hanson is definitely familiar with it. It's like the thing that people associate with Hanson, in my opinion, other than like cranberries, which <laughs> we kind of don't have a choice in people associating Hanson with cranberries because of ocean spray. But that, you know, is one of the things. Uh, I even learned how to swim there, which I'm going to say is a little creepy. Once we get into some of these stories, you'll understand where I'm coming from on that. Um, so according to Wikipedia, Camp Kwani is currently a summer camp and function facility. The main building is known as Needles Lodge, and there are about a dozen or so smaller cabins surrounding it. And they're all located on a small lake where the town offers swimming lessons and the swim team practices in the summer. Industrialist and lawyer, love that, Alfred Cameron Burridge built Camp Kiwani, which was then known as the Needles, as his summer estate in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was later purchased and used by the Campfire Girls, a girls' summer camp. And now the town of Hanson owns and operates it, and it's a pretty popular wedding venue as well. That's that's why we're going to be there in a few weeks. Shout out to Brianna. <laughs> a few weeks. It's still a couple months away. And of course, it, it's super haunted. Um, so the main source I have for a lot of this creepy stuff is Wes Bloss, who's a former Hanson selectman and also my uncle's brother, and also was a science teacher at my middle school, and is also more or less the unofficial town historian of Hanson. Uh, It comes from chapter 27 of his book on Hanson, which is entitled The Ghost of Alice Burridge. So I know Mr. Bloss is very thorough in his research, so I'm sure that um, his writing comes from a combination of recorded sources and word of mouth because, like with all good folklore, the good stuff is rarely written down. So I'm very inclined to believe what he has to say about this and and know that it comes from um, a very historical place in Hanson. Very historical word of mouth, I guess you could say. So he's my main source on this, and his the chapter he wrote on this is so interesting. I would love to read the rest of that book on Hansen at some point. So Alfred Burridge had a niece named Alice, who often spent her summers at the Needles with her rich uncle and her cousins. Back in the early 1900s, the Needles often hosted glamorous events, and there were often many suitors lined up to catch Alice's attention. She fell for one young man who was a doctor. He proposed, and they decided to get married at the Needles Lodge, as couples still do today. So one afternoon in July, guests arrived for this beautiful wedding ceremony, and we're talking like flower petals everywhere. Lights are glittering. There's a string quartet. This wedding is all out. Oh, wow. Sounds beautiful. Absolutely marvelous. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it was allegedly stunning. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> I gotta say allegedly because this was over a hundred years ago, so I wasn't there. We all know it was stunning. It's fine. Allegedly. <laughs> um, so Alice was upstairs getting ready in like kind of like a bridal room, um, which is now ominously known as Alice's room. And she was getting ready with friends and family for her wedding. She was getting ready to walk down the aisle. And she was supposed to walk down the stairs and then straight down the aisle. So the story goes that the string quartet began to play and Alice did not emerge from the upstairs. So her cousin Elizabeth went to check on her. And um, here's where the trigger warning comes into play. Found her dead, hanged from a ceiling hook, still in her wedding gown, which was uh, apparently blowing in the wind which sounds like the exact kind of juicy detail that probably has to be real. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, <laughs> oh my gosh. Right? A window was open, but other than that, there was no sign of forced entry or anything amiss. And apparently no one was seen going up there other than like family and friends. Um, some stories also do claim that there was like a knife and a bloody footprint, but really on the surface, it seems like a pretty cut and dry suicide. Um, the question really just comes down to why, because this was a woman who was very in love with her fiance, had a lot of money, was doing well in life. Just seems like a lot of unanswered questions here. Was she really in love with her husband? Because, you know, the first thing that people always say is the husband did it. Well, the husband went to war and got sad and stuff after she died. So I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> so possibly connected to this, the man who lived at the gatehouse and oversaw the caretaking of the estate, went missing that same day what? and was never seen again, despite lengthy searches. So it's unclear if this is connected because he had no known relationship to Alice Burridge other than the fact that he was the caretaker of the estate that she spent her time at. But like, damn, it really sounds suspicious, doesn't it? It does. I've only yeah. ever heard about, you know, of Alice, I guess. I never knew her name, but I had heard of her story. I never heard <laughs> of this other person that went missing. Yeah. So we'll get back to him in a minute. So Alfred Burridge sold the needles not long after his niece's death, and the Campfire Girls took over in 1922. But if you thought the story ended there, you would be wrong. Because in 1933, a campfire girl was fishing in the pond, and she got her foot stuck in something in the water, which she thought was, like, a tree stump or a log. And a staff member came over to help her break free, only to find that her foot was stuck in a human rib cage. Oh, my God! This is also something I've heard, and I've forgotten. Probably uh -huh. for a good reason, but... This is the pond that Christine and I learned how to swim in. <gasps> oh, my God! And they a human rib cage there. It was like mythology growing up. Like, oh, did you hear about, like, you think it's not like substantiated, but like, this is pretty substantiated. This like. I didn't know any of this was actually true. <laughs> I've possibly, never. Or possibly true. At it's, least, it's you know. Allegedly true. I'm going to keep saying allegedly this whole time. <laughs> it's allegedly true. So this was never like connected to Alice's death or the disappearance of the groundskeeper or I don't even know if this was like proven. I'd have to look up the police records, which from about 90 years ago could be kind of tough to do. But Hanson mythology in general speculates that this is the body of the groundskeeper who disappeared the day of Alice's death. And forensically, that makes sense. Um, finding skeletal remains after 10 years after someone goes missing, if he died, you know, if he drowned in the pond the day he went missing, 
it would make sense for his remains to be skeletal over 10 years later. So, I mean, yeah, it tracks. It certainly is um, a weird coincidence that you would have a missing person from that area and then a body. Well, but, um, because the other the other question is, if it's not him, then him. Then who is it? Yeah, and I don't even delve into that because I don't even know where to start on that. But it's pretty accepted that it was him, even though there was no like DNA or anything that they could do back then to confirm that. Um, so a little more recently, the town of Hanson bought Camp Kwani in the 70s. They use it now for theater productions and other events. So I know in middle school once, we had a school play rehearsal there. And it was during school vacation week. So the school was like locked. And they would take us to Camp Kwani instead for our rehearsals. And Mrs. Bloss, who is Wes's wife, Joanne, who was also a teacher at the middle school, she would take a bunch of students up to Alice's room where they keep props and tell them the story of her death exactly where it happened. Uh, I was in sixth grade. I did not go. I stayed downstairs. I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going up there. So um, I heard all this secondhand. But apparently the vibes were, like, way off, and the energy was just, like, palpably negative. Um, People were like, yeah, you can tell someone died in there. You know, how eloquent sixth graders are when they talk about stuff like this. Um, And the hook is still in the exact same place. No, thank you. That's a hard pass. Yeah, I don't know if I would even go (laughs) as an adult, but definitely not when I was 11. And I was like, eh. Um, Fuck that. So the hook is still there which is just a fun fact. It was never moved. It's still there. But don't just take it from me and dozens of other secondhand stories from Hanson residents. The Massachusetts Paranormal Society has also taken a look around Camp Kiwani. In 2010, they brought along local psychic Don Carr. Their team had a number of odd experiences during the exploration, particularly in Alice's room. Shocker. Um, where multiple people claimed that they felt touches on the back of their necks and on their knees. So high EVP levels were recorded at both the main lodge and the gatehouse, which tracks with the well-believed story of Alice's death and the groundkeeper's disappearance. The psychic car sensed the presence of a woman with an A name, but she thought it was someone who was a cook or caretaker in the 50s and 60s. So probably not Alice, probably someone related to the campfire girls. And then unsurprisingly, she felt women dancing on stage and actors performing. She even called out some specific names of like local actors who'd been involved in town theater there. And she also rather notably felt a really strong Native American presence throughout the entire property, which does make a lot of sense because Camp Kwani and the entire town of Hanson is on Wampanoag land. And the prime location of the pond makes it a really good place to settle. So she claims that these Native American spirits protect the land but that they won't be happy if it's changed in any major capacity. So just a little warning not to uh, mess with Camp Kwani, I guess. So the good news is that other than regular upkeep, there are no plans to change anything about Camp Kwani. Kids can still learn to swim at Cranberry Cove, and I know the three of us are going to a wedding there this summer, so clearly people are not afraid to get married there. Um, I just hope that when we go, we get to see or feel something spooky. I just feel like that would be like the coolest story to tell to add to that Hanson mythos of Camp Kwani. I can just imagine us, you know, slightly buzzed 
going slightly. around Camp Slightly. Qu- slightly. Maybe a little drunk. Maybe. We do uh, just going around Camp Kwan. We do like a, a girl's trip to the bathroom where we all go together. Yeah. And then like <laughs> one by one, we're like waiting for people to come out of the stalls. And it's like everyone's in the stall except like Rachel, who's waiting by the mirrors. And then Rachel feels something on her shoulder. Oh, and she's no, like, no, no. There? And it's no one. And then we switch out. Rachel goes in the stall and I'm waiting. And then I feel it. Like, I feel like it would just be like, a good story to tell. No, I feel yeah. like we're going to get drunk and then we're all going to be like, hmm, like, let's go like into the woods. And then we're just going to like go somewhere deep into the woods. Just be like. Well, I know when I found out the wedding was going to be there, my mom was like, oh, you and your friend went to cabins. And I was like, no. <laughs> I've stayed in those cabins before and it just gets so dark. And also I live right down the street. So there's no point in renting out a cabin, but it should be a really fun a really fun time. So just hopefully we won't see any like rib cages. Nope. It's like so horrible to laugh at. <laughs> All right. So that's that's my segment. Um yeah. So at this point I'm gonna turn it over to Christine, um, who's talking about Sandra Crispo, a much more recent case with much more evidence. Because it wasn't 100 years ago, and it's not all folklore. So take it away, Christine. Yes. So actually, this case is pretty interesting because, honestly, the majority of what I have to go off of is reports from Sandra Crispo's family. Mm. Not a lot of information has been released by the police. They are keeping it very kind of hush-hush and very quiet. Maybe for good reason, I'm assuming. So Yeah, like not to like jump in right away, but like usually they do withhold information because if and when she's found, there might be something that like a suspect could say in an interrogation that would really give away that they were involved. Well, they want to make sure that they can prove because otherwise you can just take so much from the media and just spit information and that's how people get falsely convicted. Right. Yes. And this is still very active and ongoing, so um, it only makes sense. But, you know, growing up in Hanson, generally a safe town, I would say, about 35 minutes south of Boston. I've lived here my entire life. Kate's lived here her entire life. You know, we don't really need a website to tell us how safe it is. But if you do just a quick search on Neighborhood Scout, uh, you can see that it is safer than 89% of U.S. cities. Violent crime is really, really low. 0.94 per 1,000 residents as compared to the Massachusetts average of 3.03 per 1,000. And it's, you know, not uncommon to see kids riding their bikes around the neighborhood, people going out for a jog well into the night, neighbors chatting. Not a massively, massively wealthy town, but it's clean, it's well-kept, and it's friendly. It's the kind of town where everyone knows everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Literally everyone knows everyone. Seriously. Uh, Kate and I alone have like five cousins in this town. We literally, our whole street is like family at this point. Yeah, just like Exa- one exactly. whole street belongs yeah, to your my, family. Yeah, my dad calls it the compound. Because <laughs> it's just like, you drive down the street and it's like, oh, that's a cousin, that's a cousin, that's my aunt, that's my uncle. Like, <laughs> just know everyone. And you know what? What Christine was saying about like joggers and bicyclists, there's a lot more people on bikes and joggers than you would expect for a town that doesn't even have sidewalks. Exactly. I can't believe they don't have sidewalks. Also, like Hanson, it's pitch dark 
in that town. There's like no streetlights anywhere. Like it's just dark everywhere. Like that's dangerous as fuck. Like no thank you. We had like a streetlight on our street. <laughs> just one for the whole town. The because that was like the streetlight. <laughs> and it was like the scariest thing at like 530 in the morning and you're like standing out and it's like you can hear like the coyotes howling because you're like in the woods. And there's like oh, a streetlight. <laughs> anyway, it's a safe area is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Because I never actually felt unsafe out there at 5.30 in the morning in the pitch black. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right? So that's why when reports that Sandra Crispo, who was a 54-year-old grandmother, was missing, emerged, residents of the town were pretty shocked. Um, it was hard to believe that anything sinister could happen in this small, quaint town. And almost three years later, there are still more questions than answers about her disappearance. So on August 7th, 2019... Sandra Crispo was dropped off at her house after taking her car in for repairs by her son-in-law, Tim, who was married to Sandra's daughter, Lena. When Lena called her mom the next day, Sandra didn't answer. Lena called again several times that day and later in the night and still with no answer. So the following day, Lena brought her sons to Sandra's house so that she could watch them while Lena was at work. And upon arriving at Sandra's house, Lena found the lights and AC in the house on and Sandra's dog sitting in the recliner with no food or water, Sandra nowhere to be found. Hmm. So, yeah, suspicious. Yeah, the dog is what makes it. Yeah, there's no way that she would leave her dog. Leave her dog. No, no way. No. Like, I don't even know her, but she wouldn't leave her dog. <laughs> right, who would leave I don't her think dog? Anyone would. <laughs> no. no, how could you do that? <laughs> you wouldn't. No one would. No. So, when doing research for this case, the Vanishing podcast was very, very helpful in providing firsthand accounts from several family members of Sandra who discussed her disappearance at length. So uh, when I talk about her daughter said this or Tim said this, it will mostly be coming from there because that's the place that I was able to find all of these firsthand accounts from. Sandra's daughter, Lena, has been highly involved in this case from the beginning and has stated, I am her voice. I am her advocate. She needs me. Lena talks about her early childhood with her mom, dad, and older brother, Stephen, with fondness, recalling days spent on her dad's fishing boat out of the Boston Harbor. Sandra worked on the boat with her husband, and Lena admits that they didn't have a perfect life, but that she had a fun upbringing with everything she needed. Sandra's cousin through marriage, Deborah, explained that Sandra and Steve, her ex-husband, had lived together for a while prior to getting married. Sandra then got pregnant with her son, Stephen, followed by Lena a couple years later. Deborah described Sandra's ex-husband as an overall great guy, with him and Sandra being divorced for around 15 years at the time of her disappearance. There did not seem to be any animosity between the two of them. The divorce was described as amicable, with the two remaining very friendly. And after their divorce, Sandra moved back in with her father, whom she took care of. So by all accounts... Sandra was not the type of person who would just disappear. She was known to be a loving grandmother who really looked forward to spending time with her grandkids and doing arts and crafts. She was described by many as a homebody with a very small group of friends, most of whom were her relatives. Relatable. And she didn't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely relatable. <laughs> um, but this was everyone basically who was asked about Sandra said the same thing. You know, she kept to herself, was a homebody, very very small group of friends, you know, didn't really go out much. And she didn't really have much. She lived a really simple, quiet life. I feel like most people, at least around here, are homebodies because what else are you going to do? 
No, right. that's very true. But I think the thing that shocks people, people do around here. <laughs> Sorry. The thing that the thing that shocks people the most though with Sandra and just how simplistic her life was was that she had no cell phone. She didn't have a computer. She did not have a debit card. Up until recently, she hadn't even had a bank account. Um, and she wasn't on any social media accounts. Dude, so she just had like, money in her mattress? I will actually get into that later. <laughs> That's shit. Oh, no. Pot- potentially, that is very much not – I mean, that's a stretch, I but potentially. That in and of itself is kind of suspicious. Yeah. It almost sounds like she wanted to, like, be off the grid as much as possible. I mean, yeah. Well, I'll get into a little bit more of that stuff later, but – Definitely, definitely not the norm, um, especially because she's not – I mean, she's a grandmother, but she it's not like she's 80. She's 54, so. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but she did – she loved animals. She had a lab named Clarence, mm-hmm. and she would often walk him around the neighborhood. So several big life events happened in the months leading up to Sandra's disappearance. First, her dad died. Uh, she had lived in his house alone for some time after his death, but ultimately kind of wanted to downsize. So Lena, her daughter, and Tim, her son-in-law, wanted to find Sandra a house that would be closer to them and her grandchildren. And eventually, Sandra closed on a home in Hanson in April of 2019, so a few months before her disappearance. It's really close. Yeah, yeah that's really soon. That's really soon. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was like that quick. So Lena did admit that her mom struggled a bit after her father had died and that she had issues with depression at this time, but she does explain that this new home was like a new start for Sandra and that she was taking pride in having her own space. Lena's husband, Tim, also explains how Sandra made many plans in terms of decorating the house, making her grandchildren their own bedroom they could use when they were there. And after some periods of depression, he said that Sandra was the happiest he had seen her at this point in her life. So very little is known when it comes to the actual details on the hours leading up to her disappearance. So what is known is this. Sandra needed to get her car fixed. The exhaust system had been in bad shape for quite some time, ever since her car had to be pushed out of a snowbank by Tim, actually, that previous winter. Tim and Lena convinced her to get it fixed at a local mechanic that they had become friendly with. And on August 7th, Tim went to pick up the boys at Sandra's house after work then had Sandra follow him to the mechanic in her car. And after talking to the mechanic, dropping her car off, Sandra asked him if they could stop at the Cumberland Farms near her house uh, so she could grab a pack of cigarettes since she wouldn't have her car for several days. So Tim agreed and they stopped there, with this being the last known photo evidence of Sandra Crispo before her disappearance. Mm. Tim then dropped Sandra off at her house with his sons in the car, and drove off after they all said goodbye. That was around 5 p.m. At approximately 5.30, Sandra made a call to her cousin, Therese. When interviewed by detectives, Therese stated that she had actually been planning to pick Sandra up on Wednesday, which was that day, after she dropped her car off at the mechanic so that she could spend the night at her house. However, Therese stated that Sandra never got back to her after dropping her car off. So, This is a consistency that I didn't hear anyone talk about, but that I noticed and that, you know, maybe someone reported the times wrong or it's just not clearly reported. I don't know. But 
Therese stated that Sandra didn't get back to her after dropping her car off, but Sandra called Therese at 5.30, which should have been after Tim dropped her off at the house, because Tim was stated to have dropped her off at 5. Yeah. So I, ju- I just found that weird. I don't know if it's just, like, an error in the reports. Or maybe it's, like, even- misremembered. Right. So, but, wrong, well, you know? well, no, because the police were the ones that contacted her because they could see that she called at 530. Oh. So maybe Tim remembered the time wrong? Yeah, that he dropped her off at a later time than he thought or something? Maybe. Yeah. But that was just something I noticed. Anyway, so Therese was the last person that she contacted. There was not really any information about what they talked about, if Therese even picked up the phone. But the next day, Elena received a phone call on her day off from work from the mechanic who could not get into contact with Sandra and who told Lena that Sandra would need a whole new exhaust system. So Lena called Sandra to give her this news and describes kind of this awful feeling that came over her when her mom didn't answer as if she almost immediately knew that something might be wrong. So she called a couple other times that afternoon and then she made another call around 8.30 that Thursday night, but again, no answer. And at that point, Lena was thinking, you know, maybe I should go check on her, especially because, uh, like, she didn't have a car with her at this point. Her car was at the mechanic. Where could she so, have been? Yeah, right. where was she going to go? Wait, why is she, she not go? answering if she's clearly probably going to be home? Yeah. And she was known as a homebody. She wasn't one to go out with her neighbors, really. But Lena's husband, Tim, kind of convinced her it's probably nothing to worry about. You know, maybe she was sleeping Maybe she didn't want to talk at that at that time or the day. And he kind of just told her, look, like you're going to drop the kids off in the morning before work anyway. It's probably going to be fine. Just get some sleep and don't worry about it too much. Like she's an adult, essentially. So that's what Lena did. And she made a final call that Friday morning before leaving to drop the kids off. And the call still wasn't answered. So Lena got to Sandra's house earlier than normal that Friday, and she didn't have the kids jump out of the car like they normally would. Instead, she opened the car door, left them buckled in, and peeked inside the windows first. And when she did that, she noticed the lights and AC were on. She noticed the front door was locked, so she went around to the back door expecting it to also be locked, but it wasn't. She went inside and immediately noticed that Clarence, the lab that Sandra had, who was normally really jumpy and excited to see visitors, was sitting on Sandra's recliner with his tag wagging a little bit, but looking a way that Lena described as cowardly and just uncharacteristic for him. Stop! This hurts my heart! I hate when the dog has to be involved. Oh, no. Poor doggo. And don't you just wish that dogs could talk? Like, Right, because Clarence saw some shit go down. Oh, he did. It would just make this whole thing so much easier. If Clarence could just be like, oh my gosh, you guys will not believe what just happened to Sandra. <laughs> right, Oh my exactly. gosh. I saw the whole thing. <laughs> I saw all of it. Here's a detailed account. Oh, it, would make, um, it would make this podcast obsolete, but you know. That's true. <laughs> uh, so his food and water dishes were noticeably empty. A spare bedroom had been set up for the kids. Snacks were ready for them to eat. Um, And this was later found, but a note was found on her dresser that said, get a birthday present for Lena, uh, with Lena's birthday being only four days away from her disappearance. So not really the home of someone who 
would just willingly go up and disappear themselves. So although this all was very concerning for Lena, she said in that moment, she felt she still had to go to work. After around 15 years working as a trauma nurse, she wanted something different and with better hours. So she had recently started a new position within her hospital. And this week, she was still in orientation. And she just kind of felt, you know, I can't miss this. So she made alternative childcare arrangements really last minute, and then she immediately called Tim, who agreed to go over to Sandra's house and look around for her. Lena also at this time made phone calls to several other relatives of hers, including Sandra's sister, Linda, and the news of Sandra's disappearance spread through her family very quickly. Now, when Tim got to Sandra's house that Friday, he immediately knew something was not right, and he knew that he had to act fast. He said it wasn't in Sandra's makeup to just disappear and leave the dog, knowing that she was going to also watch the kids that Friday. Sandra wasn't one to talk about having a boyfriend. She had mentioned meeting some neighbors, but it wasn't like she was the type to go out and party with them and just leave. Tim ended up filing a police report after checking Sandra's house, and Lena got out of work early that day due to her just not feeling right being there. So when Lena showed up at Sandra's house again, detectives were already there. And Sandra's family really, really praises the handsome police on wasting absolutely no time, which I think is a really good case because that's not always the situation with the police. Hell Um, yeah. Love to hear it. Mm -hmm. They immediately completed a search around the entire house and property. They sent out cadaver dogs. Uh, They interviewed neighbors, none of whom recalled seeing Sandra out walking or seeing anyone come by her house to pick her up. Uh, The police very soon had people out in ATVs looking in cranberry bogs, as we've mentioned. Of course. Those are big in Hanson. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, they looked there around dirt roads, really taking this report seriously. Uh, Now, despite these efforts, time goes on and Sandra remains missing. And as time goes by, Lena and her family's concerns grow. Ultimately, 52 days into the investigation, Lena believes that the town of Hanson needs more resources. She contacts Tim Cruz, the Plymouth County District District Attorney, and states that she believes there is a public threat at large and that Hanson needs additional help. As the house hadn't been searched by crime scene or forensic specialists at this point. So as Lena investigates the house further after that initial day, she also notices some things that she finds odd. Sandra's closet seem a bit tossed. But Lena isn't sure if this is an indication of a struggle, which is kind of her inclination, you know, or if it was just because her mom was still getting the house in order. Like we said, she had just moved in a couple months ago. Lena also describes the bed being off of its spring and the headboard being a bit off, almost as if someone had lifted the mattress or was looking for something. Oh. Yeah. Oh, but that goes back to the the money in the mattress. Yes. I mean, it would be... A raging cliche, but yeah, I know. Especially like it, it could have been somebody close who knew. Yeah, it would be someone who knew she didn't use a bank account. You know, yeah. like, right? Hmm. And like, it is a small town. Like things do get around. Everyone knows everyone. Yeah. And the reports on this don't say you know how much moved off it was or if it was like anything significant. But it's definitely something that Lena notices. Sandra's pocketbook, shoes, and clothes that she had been wearing that Wednesday, the last time that she was seen, were also missing from the house. And it is known that law enforcement eventually did search her home further, 
but we don't have that information about what was taken and why as nothing has been released publicly. So around this time, Tim begins to take his own initiative in the investigation and installs ring cameras at Sandra's house to see if anyone shows up. This also was done as just a security measure since people knew Sandra wasn't at her house and there was concern that someone might attempt to break in. That makes sense. Yeah. And sure enough, Tim did get a notification that there had been someone detected on the camera. The device showed that a car had pulled up to Sandra's house and a younger woman wearing a hoodie got out of the car and left something on the front stoop of Sandra's door. So immediately, Tim rushes over. Right. (laughs) Rushes over to Sandra's house. And when he gets there, he finds a note under the statue saying, you have to look into this certain person from Hanson because this person thinks that him and Sandra might have known each other. Oh. Yeah, an interesting lead, but sadly okay. it doesn't really it, it doesn't really go anywhere. So the man ended up being a local who had recently been released from prison at around the same time that Sandra had gone missing. And when police kind of look into this further, there's no connection found between them. And it's also determined he has not been around Sandra's or he had not been around Sandra's house at the time of her disappearance. So kind of a dead end. Yeah. Yeah. Still interesting, though. Right. Especially like the sneaking up the to the person house and know. who went. Exactly. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you just either present Call that information the to the police or, I mean, the family yeah. had been so transparent about. Yeah wanting this information so it's it's just interesting they would be so secretive about it Hmm. unless they were involved that's true and that's something i i kind of thought about but again no information to go off of or they're direct like they're related to somebody who was directly involved like they wanted to point in the right direction but they didn't necessarily want to dive in head first yeah that makes sense So there is also a whole other side to the story. So in order to fully tell this story, we also have to kind of dive into the divide in Sandra's family that had been going on at the time. The divide was reported to have started following the death of Sandra's father. There have been rumors in town forums and reports from someone claiming to be Sandra's sibling, Michael, that her father's death was very suspect. Even though he did die in his mid-80s, Apparently, he was very healthy. Though not confirmed, there are individuals who state that Sandra's father had a lot of gold, over $1 million worth, and that there were disagreements regarding his will and how his assets should be distributed among the siblings. So by all reports, Sandra wanted a simple life. She had no interest in a large sum of money or in arguing with her siblings about money. However, there were allegedly family members who could not focus on anything other than their share, with some reportedly being concerned enough about Sandra having that money that they would go to great lengths to get it. Motive. Yeah. (laughs) The Vanished podcast did reach out to all of Sandra's siblings, but only one they could reach and get a comment from. And that was Sandra's sister, Linda, who was the sister Sandra was reportedly closest to. So Linda essentially stated that her and Sandra were the closest siblings in the family, but that she wasn't a good candidate to speak on the podcast about Sandra because she easily got emotional. Lena maintains that it's suspicious that Sandra's door was unlocked that Friday morning with no signs of forced entry, 
She doesn't think her mom would have opened her door to anyone and that it must have been someone she knew. Though Lena was not suspicious of anyone in the family at first, this has changed in the almost three years that Sandra has been missing. Lena says that her mom's siblings weren't acting in the way that she would act if her sibling was missing. Complete strangers from around Hanson would volunteer their time to go out and search. They would put bumper stickers on their cars, signs on their lawns. I'm sure you've seen them driving by. The signs are still... They're still up at the Hanson train station. I just saw one driving to Rachel's house today, actually. My neighbor, I think, has them in their front yard. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. complete strangers essentially went out of their way to help Lena and her family through this tragic ordeal. And even Sandra's ex-husband's family has really gone above and beyond to support them. But Sandra's siblings, nothing. Hmm. They've reportedly not offered to help at all. So it kind of makes you question why. Yeah, that's that's sus. It is sus. I understand everybody grieves differently, obviously. And like you don't know how you act until you're in the actual position. But I still feel like no matter what, you would want to do anything to find your family member. Yeah, I feel right. like grief is like a very different stage then yeah like she's still missing it's not like she's it wasn't like yeah had her body and knew she was dead and just didn't know who killed her it was like they didn't know where she was so like schrodinger's missing person you know she could be dead and in which case i would say their grief would be reasonable but like it's just as likely that she could be alive exactly like if my brother went missing i would automatically go to all of the search, you know, right. I would assume he was on everything. Yeah. I wouldn't start yeah. grieving loss, you know? Especially, Especially because it was so, so soon. soon. Yeah. As we yeah. say the same <laughs> thing. Like, jinx, you owe me soda. Yeah, it was so soon. Like, it wasn't, like, enough time in between, I feel like. Right. Mm-hmm. So another thing I found interesting within that podcast episode I listened to is that they made a statement along the lines of it's not what Sandra's siblings have not done, but also what they have done that leads us to question why they have not been more transparent. And they also said they can't share any other information at the request of law enforcement and the district attorney at this time. So that just leads me to believe there could be a lead in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. So... Sandra did reportedly pay for her house in cash, which might support her siblings' belief that she did receive something from her father and had more money than maybe she was letting on. I have a question. Yes. <laughs> so how how soon after he passed did she buy the house? Do we know? I don't know, but it seemed to be pretty fast because one of her – Not exactly known 100% if this is her sibling, but by all accounts, her sibling Michael has been posting in a lot of forums, kind of with a conspiracy theory, and he stated, you know, what's the real reason of Sandra selling the house so quickly of her father and then moving to Hanson? Yeah. So Hmm. I guess it was pretty fast. But yeah, Tim also kind of alluded to maybe her having some money during one of his statements. He was saying that, you know, maybe Sandra had gone over to a neighbor's house that night and started talking to someone there who might have thought she had a lot of money based on something she said. So that's another possible theory. 
And after doing a super deep dive on several Reddit threads, which are uh-huh. obviously not reliable, but which you just can get so lost in, there's – yeah, th- this comes back to the reports from an individual on Facebook claiming to be her brother, Michael. And he says the person who murdered their father was the same person who murdered Sandra. And he seemingly is pointing his finger at their sister, Wanda, for being the mastermind behind all of this. Michael, if it's really him, states that there's more to the story than what Sandra's daughter and son-in-law are stating and finds it suspicious that they don't mention the real reason she had to get rid of her cell phone and how odd it was that she disappeared the same night she had to get her exhaust fixed. Kind of pointing his finger at them as well and saying yeah, the exhaust system thing might have been done by someone on purpose. Mm. Sabotage. Yeah. He also mm-hmm. claims to have many voicemails that prove that Sandra was not actually as happy as those family members report and that this was all a conspiracy to steal his father's fortune. He stated that with Sandra's mental health deteriorating and knowing that Sandra had spoken to individuals about her siblings' plan to steal her father's fortune, some of his siblings needed to get rid of that problem or face prison for his father's death. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So okay. again, Holy this story shit. really, really leaves yeah. you with so many more questions than it does answers. It just seems so simple at first, and then it really branches out into all these different. Trust me, I the whole family stuff wow. was intense. It's kind of like that the Spider Man meme where they're like looking <laughs> at each other, or like the <laughs> Office where they have like the the finger guns and oh my god, that's so <laughs> like, funny. Down and bring back up. That's what, yeah. it, that's what it sounds like. Everyone's pointing at someone else. Yeah. It's a pretty crazy story. And, I mean, there's also some people that suspect maybe, like Michael was saying, her mental health was not where people said it was. Maybe there were other issues that Sandra was dealing with that we just don't know about or her family members don't want to talk about. But it's kind of all speculation. I don't know. I, I understand. I understand it's obviously hard to really get a full picture at somebody's mental health. But the thing is, I feel like if she did commit suicide, which I'm like not saying she did or anything, I feel like her body would have been found by now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think some people are thinking, well, maybe she was an alcoholic or something like that. There have been people that have suggested that um, and that maybe she got lost in the marsh after an accident. But the thing with that is that I don't know that her daughter, who's a nurse, would trust her to take care of the kids so regularly alone yeah. if, if she had those issues. If she had those sort of doubts about her ability to care for herself in that way, would she right. really entrust the care of her children? Yeah. Her? Yeah, that's a really good point. Also, I feel like if she truly was an alcoholic, I think there like would have been more whisper around the town about it. Hmm. Yeah, perhaps. But she was also so new to the town. She was like a transplant. That's true. No, that is true. So you know, because I say everyone knows everyone, but I didn't know her. <laughs> That's true. So yeah. So again, lots of questions, not many answers. 
And since there's just not many details about that night on August 7th of 2019, a lot of the story remains speculation, at least for the general public. Ultimately, this investigation is still active and ongoing. Sandra Crispo has been missing since August 9th, 2019. She's a white female aged 54 at the time of her disappearance. She's five foot six to five foot seven and weighs around 125 pounds. She was last seen at her house in Spoford Avenue in Hanson, Massachusetts, wearing a white t-shirt and pink capris. Anyone with any information is urged to contact Hanson Police at 781-293-4625 or state police detectives at 508-894-2600. And again, I just want to credit the Vanish podcast because it provided me with the firsthand accounts for of Sandra's family, which is pretty much the only information we really have to go off of right now. Uh, the Charlie Project, uh, which posted a brief report of her disappearance, her pictures, and then all of the descriptions I just read about Sandra Crispo. And then I also got some information from Boston 25 News that has just been reporting a lot of this information. So yeah. Wow. That was my segment. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more to that than I knew. I agree. I didn't know like any of that. Yeah, I mean, her story has been something that I've just seen passing by and kind of heard just about this missing woman from Hanson, but I I really didn't know about all of this mm. details, all the, details. All the yeah. details and the family stuff. It's just a lot I, more in, intense. No, the money, like all that money, money. is just sketch. So sketch. And the thing is, like, people will do anything for money. Like, I feel like at that point family doesn't matter which is horrible obviously but people suck yeah well thank you that was great so on our next episode i think tentatively we're going to cover whitman and we'll hear from rachel about uh, a creepy case and uh maybe some other assorted crimes that have happened in um some other small towns so um Thanks for joining us for our first episode of Small Town Mysteries. And see you or you'll hear us. <laughs> We're not seeing you. You're not seeing us. But We're not watching you guys. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, you can't see you through your iPhone cameras. We are not an FBI agent. Yeah. What is this, 1984? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I just tried to make Orwell and It just didn't happen. Orwell. <laughs> okay um on on that on that note i feel like we need to we need to end it yep um but this was really fun so we'll uh we'll be back with another episode next week yes bye bye